You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. All right, welcome back to the Sports Media Watch podcast. This is John Lewis, joined as always by Drew Lerner. If you have not already, please subscribe to the Sports Media Watch podcast feed on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, anywhere you get podcasts. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about the ESPN layoffs that broke on Friday. We'll be joined by Bob Cochris, the NASCAR writer, to talk about the race in Chicago. And we'll have more from our interview last week with the Medford So why don't we go ahead and get started talking about the big story, the ESPN layoffs last week. And uh, obviously, whenever ESPN does layoffs of talent, there's going to be big names involved. But I don't think anybody expected Jeff Van Gundy to be one of those names. So Jeff Van Gundy, the lead ESPN ABC NBA analyst since 2007, joined them straight out of the Houston Rockets. He was coaching in the first round of the playoffs. Houston lost to Utah in seven. By the end of the second round, he was working with Mike Green and Mark Jackson, and ESPN unceremoniously lays him off. That was obviously the biggest shock. Uh, Andrew Marchand in the New York Post had been uh, hinting for months that Susie Calber and Steve Young were going to be uh, let go. That's a, 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 a nonsensical decision to me by ESPN, but it was forecast long enough in advance that it wasn't surprising. But uh, for Jeff Van Gundy to be laid off, I I wrote about this on uh, Saturday. Uh, Jeff Van Gundy called the NBA Finals, 17 straight NBA Finals, the longest streak and the most number of finals that any analyst has ever called. And he's in the same category as a Tim McCarver, as a Billy Packer. And usually when you are in that grouping, you are allowed to at least get a send-off right? You get some semblance of a send-off at the end. Instead, Jeff Van Gundy gets a Friday morning phone call being told that he's laid off. You know, that's just the way ESPN does business, uh, ultimately. But uh, it's a crummy way to treat somebody who is as associated with the NBA Finals as any analyst ever has been. Uh, Only Mike Breen has covered more finals in any role. Play-by-play, analyst, sideline reporter, studio host, only Mike Breen has covered more. There's a lot more to say, but Drew, I'm going to bring you in first. The the Jeff Van Gundy firing was obviously the biggest head scratcher for me. Um, when you look at the full list, I kind of tried to take a you know a less emotional look at some of these personalities, and I kind of was able to break down, generally speaking, into two categories of like why people likely got let go. Well, one being that, you know, some of these people just weren't on TV very much um, for probably how much they're getting paid. And and the other being that they're probably somewhat replaceable, even though they're they're all pretty good talents. But Van Gundy was the one, uh, along with a couple other names, which I, I'll get to the list later, maybe. It's just a complete head scratcher. He's your top NBA analyst for 17 years, like you said, 17 straight finals. And quite frankly, he he carried the water in that in that uh booth right he was the one willing to say things that 
maybe Mark Jackson wouldn't be willing to say. I think he got a lot of criticism in the last year or so, maybe being too critical of the refs, maybe kind of getting a little repetitive in some of his points. But I wouldn't see that as reason to let such a star like that go. Realistically, like, sure, there are good replacements internally at ESPN for, for Jeff Van Gundy, but it seems very odd to me to shake up your number one booth like that when 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 it gets very high praise um well why why would you fix something that's not really broken exactly so the points you made uh van gundy only covers the nba so maybe that makes him expendable in some ways but every analyst is only going to specialize in their sport uh, it's not like he called hardly any games he was calling games during the week for espn all the time uh so the idea that he was not doing enough work to justify I me. Mean, that doesn't make any sense. You're correct, very much so correct, that he is what made that team work with Breen and Mark Jackson. So it was Breen and Jackson solo at the beginning of the 2006-07 season. They replaced Hubie Brown with Mark Jackson, which was a questionable decision to begin with because Hubie was and is a better analyst than Mark Jackson. That was already kind of a strained decision. Uh, and it wasn't really working because Mark Jackson talks in a monotone and is not the most charismatic person. It's amazing to me how high ESPN has been on Mark Jackson from the very beginning. When, when Al Michaels came in in year two of this deal, Mark Jackson was auditioning with him to be on the lead team, right? Uh, so they were hiring him from all the way back then. They hired him. He was a studio analyst there for maybe a year or two. Uh, left for Yes Network, and then they brought him back as your lead analyst. And again, it just, it, it, you know, you can even look at the Celtic Sixers game seven the other day that Van Gundy missed, right? It was just Green and Jackson. That's not as good a broadcast. So, you know, that to me, you can't have just Green and Jackson, and they won't. They'll replace Van Gundy with somebody. But uh, Van Gundy made that team work because Mark knew him, played for him. They had great chemistry. This was great chemistry because it's not really a great team. It's really not a great team. They just work well together. Uh, so to sacrifice that is insane, obviously. Um, now, you know, I read uh, Marshawn said uh, J.J. Redick or Richard Jefferson or Doris Burke. And it's like, I like Richard Jefferson. I like J.J. Redick well enough, but they aren't there yet. I feel like they're, you know, that would be jumping the gun a little bit. If you're putting one of those two with Mark Jackson, they're not going to have chemistry. Mark Jackson is someone who works really well with Jeff Van Gundy. So, you know, the idea that Mark's going to work well with some guy he didn't even play with, you know, one of the things people talk about with Charles Barkley is, you know, Charles has become kind of a grump. Well, when Charles started on TNT, and you're not old enough to remember this, but I mean, it was Romo times 50. I mean, he was so, I mean, Charles is still beloved and Charles is still a great analyst, but when he started out, it was... Uh, refreshing. We had never really seen anything like it before. And one of the reasons why he was so good was because he was still part of the league. He was in his mid-30s. He was friends with a lot of guys. He played against a lot of guys. And as Charles has gotten older, and those young guys now are people he can't identify with, it has affected his the quality of his analysis. He's not as good an analyst now because he doesn't identify with the players, never played against them, doesn't really know them. And so a guy like Mark Jackson isn't as skilled as Charles to begin with, and he's going through the same exact thing. So now you're going to put him not only covering a game that's less familiar to him, but you're going to have a partner that's not even someone that he's a peer of. 
there's no reason to believe that he'll have the same chemistry with Reddick or, or Jefferson that he did with, with Van Gundy. Doris Burke, I think a lot of people have been waiting for Doris to get to that number one team for a long time. I think a lot of people are really fond of Doris Burke. I like Doris. I've been watching Doris Burke call games since she was, you know, Michelle Tafoya's partner on the WNBA. And to be Tafoya on play-by-play in Doris Burke, and they were the lead team. I've always enjoyed Doris. I'm, it, I, you know, I, I think I talked about this before on the podcast, but I just cut it because I didn't articulate it the way that I wanted to. But I really do feel like Doris has taken a, a step back. And I don't necessarily blame her for it. I think as you become a meme, as you become socially popular, this very similar thing happened to Romo. You become in some ways a bit of a caricature of yourself. And I do find that Doris is not the same kind of analyst that she was a few years ago. I, I would trace it back to the very moment Drake wore a Doris Burke shirt, right? And I feel like she's almost self-conscious in a way. And she wasn't before in a way where it's like, sometimes I feel like she says the things that she thinks Doris Burke should say, which is different than the way it was. Now, that doesn't mean she shouldn't get the number one gig but you're not putting her in at the same level that she was a few years ago. The reality of the matter is, if ESPN was going to dump uh, Van Gundy, they need to dump Jackson too. Easy solution to all of this, Mike Breen, Doc Rivers. That's your lead team. And that might be a better team than what they've had. Uh, a lot of people hate Doc Rivers on social media. They, they hate his coaching. They don't respect him. They're not old enough to remember even the 08 team that won. All they know is all the 3-1 leads blown and all the throwing players under the bus. And Doc comes in much more damaged goods than he was when he joined ESPN and ABC in 03. He'd only had one coaching job at that point. He'd been coached the year in Orlando, right? Now, he's got a lot more baggage now. His voice is a lot more shot now, too. But uh, I think if they, were, if, if they go with just Breen and Doc, and so not Breen, Doc, and Mark, uh, I kind of liken it to NBC. Matt Gukas was their lead analyst for years, and then they just kind of demoted him. And he was still around, still doing games, but he wasn't doing the big games anymore. That's what needs to happen with Mark. You can't, or have Mark replace Jalen Rose. Remember, he was a studio analyst for ESPN and ABC before he was a game analyst. Just plug Mark in on that awful pregame show and, uh, you know, put Doc Rivers in. I think we aligned, John, on uh, like who our top picks would be. Um, I, I was on the Doc or Doris train when I saw the news. Um, Doc, because I mean, despite all the Twitter memes and crap that people post on social media, his resume speaks for himself, for itself. I mean, he's coached in the league for longer than I've been alive. You know, he has the media experience and I think he is very articulate, well-spoken, has great insights. His ability as a coach doesn't really translate to his, his, his ability as a broadcaster although he will get unfairly judged because of that should he get in this high-profile role. Um, Doris, I agree, you know, with the characteristics that you kind of laid out there where maybe she's become a bit of a caricature, but I, I think she's earned it. She's put in the time. She's a very skilled broadcaster. I don't know how she would do in a three-person booth, especially with Jackson, because like you said, Jackson's kind of only a puzzle piece that fits in with Van Gundy, right? 
you mentioned that game seven between the Celtics and 76ers. I'm not sure if this ever got published on the website, but I remember writing an article about how lacking that broadcast was. And it ended up being a blowout, which, you know, to be fair, it's kind of tough to, to call games that are blowouts, but it was just such a dull feeling, especially in such a high profile game, game seven, you just can't have such a lack of emotion on, on a broadcast like that. So I I've can't come to like that booth, the Van Gundy Jackson booth, but it's only because they worked well together and Jackson alone just doesn't get it done. You mentioned JJ Redick. I don't think that's ever going to happen. I think it'd be kind of idiotic if they did put him in that top booth. I actually, I have a note here. I, I like JJ Redick as a, uh, as a Lafonso Ellis replacement on college game day for basketball. Um, and I know we'll probably get to some of the other names that got laid off as well, but I kind of like to slot him in there. I'd like to see him do more college basketball work because that's kind of, I think, where he's more associated with anyway. I think it'd be more of if he's willing to do that because he's been very NBA focused during his media career. Jalen Rose was the other person I had under my category of head scratchers and not necessarily because he was a great talent or that I loved his um, work or anything like that. I mean, he was fine, but Jalen Rose, he ate up a lot of minutes on ESPN programming. He was on the pregame halftime postgame show. He's appearing on the morning shows, the get ups, the first takes and whatnot. He was all over ESPN programming and to take him away as one of those primary NBA voices, I don't know who's going to fill that void because, like I said, I think some you know some people got let go because they just weren't on ESPN enough. Some people got go let go because they were they are quote unquote replaceable, like a Max Kellerman, for instance. Um, it's pretty obvious who's taking his job. Jalen Rose was just on ESPN a lot. And so I was surprised to see that he was part of the layoffs here. I, you know, I, I wasn't that surprised because you had that circumstance where he was talking about uh, Ime Udoka and, you know, that wasn't like a fireable offense or anything, but if you're looking for reasons, you know, that wasn't that surprising. And he wasn't that great of an analyst, you know, as, as you kind of implied, um, like he's, first of all, you know, Quality is not a factor for NBA Countdown. It really isn't. Uh, you can put pretty much, I mean, they'll probably put Kendrick Perkins on there. NBA Countdown is the Get Up show. It's from the, the makers of Get Up, NBA Countdown, right? Uh, it, it's uh, the Dave Roberts showcase there. And so that's why you have Greenberg, Stephen A. Uh, and uh, when you talk about people who are associated with ESPN's morning show programming, Kendrick Perkins is a hell of a lot more associated with that than Jalen Rose. Mm -hmm. So I think Kendrick will get that job. The show will probably be even more not to my liking, but you know, whatever. Uh, and um, so I, I'm not surprised with Jalen on, on that front. The only thing that'll save ESPN's NBA coverage is, you know, them losing the rights, right? I mean, that's the only thing that's going to save their, their NBA coverage at this point. I do think if they get Doc Rivers, I think Mike Green and Doc Rivers is a really good Booth. It would have to be the two of them. Um, well, John, it, you can't sit here and say it's like going to be a two-man booth. Clearly, they retained Jackson. They're not going to just say get lost. I mean, they well, they would he would have been a part of the layoffs if if they got to they, they, they got to give him. They can't. I mean, like Mark isn't good enough to work with a, a third person who isn't Jeff Van Gundy. 
you know, remember when everyone got COVID and they had to completely overdo everything for the finals first few games, it was uh, Mark Jones and Mark Jackson. They didn't move Doris Burke up. They could they could easily have had Doris do that game, that game one of the finals. They didn't do that, you know. And again, I I really cannot think of a single time. I mean, I'm I'm sure it's happened where Mark Jackson was working with the third person and it wasn't Jeff. So to me, I I would I, I have no faith in the decision making at ESPN in any respect whatsoever. But I would hope that we get lucky and that somebody out there sees it the way that I do and understands that. Jeff's gone. That means Mark has a new role next year. Maybe you put him on countdown. Maybe you put him with uh, Mark Jones. Maybe you put him with uh, and yeah, Mark and my, uh, Mark Jones and Mark Jackson. That that could work, um, especially if you elevate Doris. I don't know. I mean, something you, you just can't. You know, this is this is the broadcast team that handles the NBA Finals until 2026, when hopefully we'll be freed from that being the reality. You know, that's a solid couple of years. So they got to get it right. I just can't see it. You know, if they're paying him a team money, they're, they're not going to pay him a team money to be on the B team. So I I think we're going to be stuck with Mark Jackson for, for a little bit longer. I think the question is who are they pairing him with or God forbid (laughs) it's just Breen and Jackson, but I don't think that'll, that'll be the case. Let's get to some of the other names on this list. Let's try to focus a bit on the NFL coverage. Um, obviously, that's a big story. Susie Colber, Steve Young, Todd McShay, Matt Hasselbeck. Those are kind of the big names that were let go from uh, ESPN's NFL coverage. Uh, any thoughts on, on that short list there? Well, I mean, Susie Colber is the best host they have. So laying her off is ridiculous. But, you know, this is, again, it's not a quality discussion. Uh, Susie Colbert should have gotten the Sunday countdown job to begin with. It was ridiculous to go with somebody who doesn't even cover football, uh, pro football. He was uh, Sam Ponder at that point was college only. And I'm not trying to, you know, be mean to Sam Ponder or anything. I have no problems with Sam Ponder, uh, but I, I just, she's clearly not as good as Susie Colbert in that role. Laura Rutledge is better. Laura's the future there. I think she'll get the countdown job at some point as well. But right now, out of the three hosts they have, they just laid off the best one. Whatever. This is ESPN. Trying to make sense of, of the worldwide leader is, is, is difficult. I understand it from the standpoint of why do you have three hosts to begin with, even though it's the NFL. But man, for the, for the, pers- for the odd person out to be the one who is the best at it, the one who is given so much of her career to ESPN, I, I just don't get it. You know, I, I was trying to think of kind of my viewership habits when it comes to Monday night football and, and also just kind of Susie's role overall at ESPN. And I, you know, other than, you know, thinking back to the DeMar Hamlin coverage last season, when I'm watching Monday night football, I'm not watching Monday night countdown. I I'm flipping it on at eight, eight fifteen PM here on the East coast. Monday, Monday's tough. You know, people are working, you know, they're eating dinner with family, whatever. They're not thinking about sitting down at their TV for an hour before the game to watch, you know, a pregame show. So for me, I barely saw her on my TV screen ever. So I understand what a immense talent ESPN is losing by laying off Colbert. However, I kind of understand the perspective ESPN is coming from here. That's 
that's a role where you're not really exposed very much. Um, you're on TV a very limited amount. Uh, it is their highest profile property. So I, you know, that should be said. However, I can understand why they would probably let go of her. And the same goes for Steve Young, right? Outside of Monday Night Countdown, you might see him on like five good minutes on PTI, but out, you know, where else is he appearing on ESPN? So again, obviously a huge name in, in NFL broadcasting, but um, they're probably paying a lot for the Steve Young name to be on their airwaves. So I can understand from a business perspective why those two were let go just because, you know, I, I don't think Monday Night Countdown is really a, a show people are tuning into and watching at, at high rates. No, you're absolutely right. That's why, the, that's why the mistake that was made here was that Susie Calver was stuck on Monday Night Countdown. You mm -hmm. know, he should have had the Sunday Countdown show. That was so inexplicable, I still don't get it. And again, I'm not trying to talk down Sam Ponder, but it never made sense. They didn't have to make their best NFL studio host expendable, but they did. And so now she's out. And we talk about women in sports media. Susie Culver should get another role, but she's an older woman. I mean, not older, older, right? But in this industry, I mean, it's a ridiculous fact that older that women hit 60 and it's like they've hit, you know, 85. Uh, and so, you know, the, the idea that Susie will get another role is, it doesn't seem overly likely, even though she's better than a lot of folks. I, I, I see her as being the top of the line. Whenever I've seen her work, I've always seen somebody who is at the top of the game that she's in. All right, let's go on to one more name here. Uh, Max Kellerman, another one that was kind of transparent, um, given the circumstances with Pat McAfee coming in, uh, filling his time slot, his radio show with uh, Keyshawn Johnson getting canceled a couple weeks prior. Kellerman's had a really interesting uh, career with ESPN, hasn't he? You know, Kellerman's an interesting one. I can't say I ever really enjoyed anything he did, but I have I have, I have respect for him because he is somebody who came out onto the scene, uh, was hosting around the horn, left for his own show, which was a risky decision to make, and it failed badly. I, I remember I sat down and I watched that first episode of, of uh, IMAX on, FS, on FSN, but, you know, FSN is something that hasn't existed in years. And, uh, you know, uh, it was it was a one episode and out for me. You know, it just wasn't the same. And uh, he, blew, he blew it. And then he came back and somehow rose all the way back up to ESPN's number one morning show, first take. That's, that's pretty amazing to me. There's a lot of people who, in the same situation, wouldn't have the ability to walk, to climb all the way back up that ladder. And he was able to do that. I, I respect that. I respect, uh, you know, how he has handled the, the personal issues he's dealt with. Uh, uh, and so these are things that could break people, and he just kept coming back. Uh, so I, I have a lot of respect for Max in, in that way. Uh, again, I'm not going to pretend I sat down and enjoyed any of the shows. I obviously wasn't watching First Take, didn't like Around the Horn when he was hosting it, uh, and never watched, you know, this just in. You know, he's not really for me, right? But I respect his journey, and uh, it's too bad that it ended the way that it did, and in large measure because of Stephen A. Stephen A. didn't want him on the show anymore, and that was it. 
it is what it is. Um, and uh, there's always room in this business for people who talk. Yeah, I, I think he'll find himself another job. Uh, I don't yeah. think we're going to be without Max Kellerman at, on some platform uh, for very long. I, I kind of echo a lot of what you said. Um, I think his resilience is is something to be commended. Uh, not everybody has has that type of uh, mentality to to kind of continuously get knocked down and and still rise to the top, like you said. Um, I think his career will kind of be inextricably linked with Stephen A. Kind of, kind of like Skip Bayless almost because. That was his highest profile role. He probably won't have a role that is quite as high profile in the future. But yeah, he's, he's talented, but probably a, a nice sizable salary cut for, for ESPN. And uh, there just wasn't room for him with, uh, with the programming changes. One other name I had on my list that was uh, pretty notable, John, was David Pollock. Um, obviously, prominent role on game day. Um, I think we might see a little bit of a shuffling on, on the football version of college game day. Now, considering McAfee's coming in, yeah, he featured pretty prominently on the show last year. Corso, who knows how many more game days he has left in him. If he'll even make appearances this year, of course, his role has been limited recently, but I mean, this is ESPN's flagship studio show in a lot of ways. Um, so it, I, I think it's worth noting that, uh, that they will have to find a replacement for David Pollock. Yeah, there's so many cooks in that kitchen on game day now. Pollock was really good on that show, but there's just so many people there. Of all the people there you could cut, he was the one that made sense. Uh, he was the one that was truly expendable, not forced expendability like with Susie Calber, but where there's, you're not going to get rid of Desmond Howard. You're definitely not getting rid of Herb Street uh, or Corso. And can you imagine if they laid off Corso? People would have just, man. Are they even paying him at this point? He probably just uh, volunteers. (laughs) Well, maybe, but I'll tell you something. Even even those folks at ESPN that couldn't care less about how long you've been there or how good your work is, they know that if if they had touched Lee Corso, there would have been hell to pay. So uh, at least there's that. But uh, so you're not getting rid of Desmond. You're not getting rid of Herb Street. You're not getting rid of Lee Corso. You're not getting rid of Reese Davis. You're not getting rid of, uh, obviously, Pat McAfee. And there's, that's a full studio. That's a full five-person team. So I mean, it's just, there's a ton of folks on game day. Uh, it's, it's, it's just packed. And so as a result, David Pollock, who didn't do anything wrong and has done a good job and is a quality analyst, he's gone. All right, John, final thoughts on uh, ESPN layoffs, any big picture stuff? I don't know why anyone would want to work there. I, I really don't. Uh, it just seems like a place where you always have to be, there's not a single person at ESPN over the past few weeks who probably wasn't worried they'd get laid off. And this is every few years. Why? Well, I mean, you know, it's still ESPN, but you know, that doesn't even really mean anything to anyone anymore. I wrote about this in my article the other day when I was coming up, ESPN was a brand. It was ESPN and ESPN, the magazine, it was a consistent brand with a consistent tone. You know, that kind of old school thing we don't see anymore, the humor, the, the wry humor about sports, right? Not taking itself too seriously. I mean, even the worldwide leader as a, as a slogan was probably a little tongue in cheek. Ultimately, everything that ESPN was all the way up through the early 2000s, all that is done. If you wanted to go back and figure out when did ESPN 
stop being ESPN. It's a very specific and unique moment. It is the first sports center they ever did in their current studio because that was Stuart Scott's final sports center. Stuart is from a completely different era of ESPN to the point where you think to yourself, Stuart Scott, who would have been what, 57? You know, and for a man in this industry, I talked about Susie Culver, for a woman in this industry, 57 is the end. For a man in this industry, 57 is just the beginning, right? And what would Stuart Scott's role be on SportsCenter right now on ESPN? Because SportsCenter doesn't matter to anybody anymore. And you would have to imagine he would still have been doing the NBA show, but maybe not. He probably wouldn't be doing SportsCenter. There's no big Sunday night SportsCenter anymore where you care who the anchors are. Would he have been doing his own show like Scott Van Pelt? You know, I mean, you think to yourself, would, would Stuart Scott have had a role with the current ESPN because it's changed so much that it, he couldn't have possibly had the role that he, that he had, right? That version of SportsCenter, that version of ESPN is completely over. And so I view that as the demarcation line, the first sports center in the new studio that's also Stuart Scott's final sports center. And from then on, what ESPN has been is unrecognizable to anybody who ever loved it. And people did love ESPN. Nobody has a kind word to say about ESPN now, but every single person who hates ESPN now at one point in their life, they loved it. One of the reasons why people hate ESPN so much now is because they feel betrayed. They loved that channel. It just vibed with them or they vibed with it. And that's long gone. All right, Bob Pachris, the Fox Sports NASCAR writer, has just joined us. And uh, Bob, thank you so much for taking the time to, uh, to pop in here as we're going to talk a little bit about NASCAR's great experiment in Chicago yesterday. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? We're doing well. So last night, uh, NASCAR, met, well, we're taping on Monday, should be noted. Uh, because of the July 4 week, we're taping a couple of days in advance. So uh, last night, Sunday night, NASCAR was able to get the Chicago street race in. And this is something that was a very much hyped race for NASCAR. And it came very close to the precipice of being postponed. Uh, Illinois, a lot of drought, uh, a lot of just, you know, no rain at all. And then over the past few days, uh, horrible weather all over the state, uh, all over the state, just tremendously poor weather. And in Chicago, it was pouring rain. And in fact, the stat is, I uh, heard this on the air yesterday, the most rain ever in Chicago on a July 2nd. Just so happened to be the day that NASCAR came to town. So, uh, Bob, you were there. Uh, did the rain kind of put a damper on things overall, or was getting the race in enough to uh, render this a success? Uh, the rain put a little bit of damper on it. You're talking about it wasn't just a race. It was a festival and the rain canceled the chain smokers on Saturday night and a concert where NASCAR was going to introduce all the drivers and kind of take their kind of class photo that they like to take for a first race weekend. But they were hoping to use that to kind of introduce their drivers to allow people who maybe don't know them. And then Miranda Lambert concert. Uh, pre-race that was going to be a full 90-minute concert was also canceled. And look, tickets for this event were pretty steep, you know, $270 uh, for the weekend. And, you know, fans got a great race once it got started. Uh, once they uh, probably dried out a little bit or just sat in very, uh, if, if their ponchos worked well enough. But, you know, I certainly 
it certainly made the, the weekend difficult, but I don't think it meant that it wasn't a success because, you know, they ended up with a, they got the race in and, you know, they had a great finish to boot. Yeah. And, you know, the other problem is too, it wasn't very scenic, right? You know, you want that blue sky and all those great Chicago uh, skyscrapers. There was a, a thick fog that set in. It's gray. You can't really see a lot of stuff. Yeah, but I mean, I think you could see enough. And I think on practice the day before you could see it. And I, I don't think there's any doubt that you weren't that you weren't in a city. Uh, now, were, were the images as picturesque as NASCAR probably hoped? No, but, you know, when you haven't seen stock cars racing at 150 miles per hour on city streets at all, just to see any images, even if they're a little bit foggy, even if they're a little bit cloudy, are still pretty stunning. What are the chances that this happens again? Obviously, this is NASCAR doing a deal with Lori Lightfoot. She's long gone. Uh, Brandon Johnson was there yesterday, the new mayor of Chicago. But there's a lot of people who say, you know, you can't shut down all these streets in Chicago for this level of time just for an, uh, an auto race. Do you see there's any way that this could be repeated? Well, the deal, the deal is a, was a three-year deal uh, with then two one-year options. And there's a 180-day uh, clause that where the city can, if they give NASCAR a 180-day notice, they can get out of the deal. So they'd have to decide probably by January 1 if they don't want to do it next year. Uh, I was at an event with uh, Brandon Johnson on Thursday in the city uh, where NASCAR was in one of the city parks contributing to one of their programs. And N NASCAR's tried to integrate themselves in the city, working with the schools. Uh, NASCAR's involved with a lot of STEM programs throughout the nation. Uh, they, they try to integrate themselves in the community as much as possible. Well, will that be enough? I, I think it will, uh, but, but you never know. In, uh, in Chicago politics. And quite frankly, you know, there was a lot of confusion on Saturday when they had to cancel uh, the rest of the day uh, because of lightning on, you know, on what NASCAR's procedures were and what the city parks procedures were. Uh, they, they weren't on the same page. And, and that was a, a frustrating uh, getting, you know, get, there were a lot of mixed messages going out on whether they were going to be able to resume or not. So you know, I would say a good 70, 75% chance that they are back, uh, probably with a little bit more discussion and, uh, you know, maybe a little bit more understanding of everything that, you know, that, that kind of goes along with it. Well, this is kind of a first for NASCAR. We do see it, obviously, with other auto racing series, F1, Streets of Monaco, uh, you know, even the streets of St. Petersburg, Florida for IndyCar. But for NASCAR, it was a historic moment. And I'm curious whether they're going to try to do this in other places. I think to myself, New York City would be an enormous hit for NASCAR. Los Angeles, they do the Coliseum already, but the streets of Los Angeles. Do you see NASCAR trying to get this done in other spots in the country, even bigger than Chicago? Uh, well, there aren't many others bigger than Chicago, but I think it's, it's possible. I don't know that they can do more than one. I, I would think their max would probably be two a year. I mean, you're talking a NASCAR is telling us, you know, more than $50 million outlay for this event when you talk about the musical acts and, and putting on those, uh, those concerts uh, added in with, with the race. So that's, it's a, it's a huge endeavor for them. They were close to working out a deal to race around the Meadowlands 
Uh, I think the difficulty there is with the horse racing schedule, getting the, the three kind of the three weeks they need to be on site and get barriers and fencing put up, but they just couldn't figure out a, a good time frame logistically to be able to uh, to be able to do it. But they they certainly, you know, I, I think this event will now lead them into what cities could be interested in it and what cities might not be interested in it. Do you think they would ever consider going outside of the country and maybe, you know, uh, seeing spots around the world? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, certainly, uh, I mean, they're looking for Montreal to race the, the, the F1 circuit they have up there, but I think it's possible. Uh, they can also go overseas with their new car that they introduced last year. The teams pretty much buy all the parts and pieces from the from a single source vendor. So they all get the same parts and the same pieces, and then they just assemble them together. It's quite possible that you could just ship all the pieces across, uh, you know, uh, to Europe and then just have the cars assembled there for them to race. They wouldn't have to actually send full completed cars over there. And so I think that opens up the opportunity to potentially do things overseas as well. Now, I know there was a car at the 24 Hours of Le Mans the other day. Uh, maybe even, uh, you know, maybe this is a crazy suggestion, maybe Monaco. I mean, that would kind of be, to me, a great hit. That's the most famous of those F1 races. Yeah, I, I don't, I have no idea about logistics and everything for there. But, I mean, racing in this, racing a stock car in the streets of Chicago is a crazy idea. Uh, creating a racetrack in the middle of the LA Coliseum <laughs> is a crazy idea. And NASCAR has shown that that they're not afraid of crazy ideas. And so far they've been relatively uh, successful with them. So uh, I, I wouldn't say anything is, is out of the question. Hey, Bob, have the drivers been uh, pretty receptive to, to these types of new, new race ideas, like you said, in the Coliseum or in the streets of Chicago? Because I'll be honest, as someone who doesn't really watch auto racing that much, I tuned into Chicago last night as a casual, and I was I was very entertained. I, it's just, you know it's more intriguing to watch someone watch race through the streets than it is to watch someone race on a racetrack. Yeah, I think they're receptive, but you know obviously the unknown creates uh, a little bit of um, you know th th there's a little bit of angst that goes with that, you know especially. When before, if they went to a new track, like a new oval, they have scans of those tracks and they probably tested on those tracks and they're somewhat comfortable with what they're about to uh, go out and do. Uh, here, you know, obviously the track wasn't even complete until the morning of <laughs> the practice on Saturday. Now they did have scans of the street. They'd done that actually three years ago and start preparation of potentially seeing if they could do this. So they had some ways to prepare but i just think the unknown you know creates all these questions in their mind especially you know when you talk about a sport where, where safety is such a big issue right so i think once that once they got there once they saw how the track was constructed once they saw you know kind of everything and while they certainly still had some concerns about hey this could be a problem there was nothing that was so glaring that made them say, man, we, we shouldn't be doing this. Now, about the, uh, you talk about all these crazy ideas NASCAR has done, and it kind of seems to start in COVID, although the Roval at Charlotte predates COVID by about a year. 
is that is that fair to say that kind of NASCAR got creative starting in that in in that uh, situation? I I think so. You know, they were also uh, you know they want to say the Bristol Dirt Race uh, was in twenty. Well, maybe that was that was twenty twenty one actually. So so that one also was after COVID. Uh, you know, yeah, I would say that once they once during COVID where they just started showing up and racing without practice and without qualifying and they just started the cars and, and started racing, uh, that opened up a lot of eyes of like, wow, we don't need to, we, we can kind of be comfortable with the uncomfortable, right? We can be, we can go out and do things that maybe, uh, you know, that they didn't think that they could do before. And so I, I, I think that is definitely one of the times, and I think it also goes with the emergence of Ben Kennedy, who is the son of NASCAR co-owner Lisa France Kennedy, and uh, I want to say great nephew of uh, of Jim France, who who runs the who owns and runs the series, and his you know keep on continuing to take an increasing role into the leadership of NASCAR, and they kind of put him in charge of the schedule, which had been so stagnant for so long. And he's the one who's uh, you know who's saying, "Hey, let's go to the Coliseum, let's try to race on the streets of Chicago." Has this kind of translated into viewership? I mean, I know we don't have uh, numbers yet for the Chicago race, but generally speaking, have have these more uh, new age ideas actually translated in the ratings? I think so. You know, it's always a pretty hard comparison, but I I think they've been pleased with that. I, what I'm really interested in is like in the Chicago market, will next Sunday night's race at Atlanta do better than last year's race at Atlanta? Will the following week's race at New Hampshire do better than the race at New Hampshire last year in the Chicago market? That's what that's what really interests me because I think that that would be an indication of whether, you know, they really, you know, made a little bit of a inroad in, in creating, you know, a new fan base. Is there anything that is not ever going to change? Uh, in NASCAR, like, would they ever consider starting the season someplace other than Daytona, for example? Like, are there any things that are just never going to happen? Um, I th I think that they would consider potentially doing a, a race before the Daytona 500, depending on scheduling and what's what's available, right? I mean, you're talking about all these ideas, but there's only certain times of the year that maybe you could do them. So, uh, so, so I think that I, I would not rule that out ever. Um, I will say that the Daytona 500 will probably always be scheduled as a 500 mile race. And I would say that, uh, that the Bristol night race will remain a Bristol night race <laughs> for as long as can be and anything. And, and maybe the Charlotte uh, 600 there on Memorial day weekend. Those are about the only three events I'd say are kind of, you know, for sure kind of keeping their, their, their format and, uh, and you know, at least for Daytona and, and the 600 of, of when they're when they're run. All right, and just one more quick thing because I just remembered mm -hmm. this. They went back to Rockingham this year for uh, the oh no no not Rockingham. They went back to North Wiltsboro for the All Star race, and it did not work out as well in the ratings as I think people would have expected. Mm -hmm. uh, stuff like that. If it doesn't kind of work out in terms of the TV ratings, is that just going to be one and done or? Will NASCAR kind of commit to that kind of, you know, throwback uh, race? Yeah, I, I think I think ratings is just a part of it, and you know that 
I mean, the, the energy in that facility was great. And there's some events I think that you do for your hardcore fan. And then there's some things that you do for your casual fan. And, in, and you even saw this in some of the commentary this week, like, hey, for all you people who are so happy about North Wilkesboro and kind of the throwback and going back to the roots, then you should accept, try to accept the going to the Chicago street course as something kind of crazy and new to help create new fans. So I think that, uh, that you know, I mean, you're always gonna look at ratings, but if it is something that creates energy and creates a social buzz among those who are your most passionate fan, and you can you probably tell that more from social engagement than you can from ratings, I think that can still, th I think NASCAR will take that heavily into account. All right. Hey, Bob, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate your insight on the race. And of course, also notable from yesterday, it was the New Zealand driver who won, which is a very unusual thing in his first ever race. So NASCAR uh, growing and, uh, you know, bringing on some, some new blood as well. Yeah. And let me tell you, I've gotten all sorts of requests from uh, New Zealand and Australia to talk about, uh, talk about NASCAR today. Yeah, which is not something that you would probably have gotten uh, typically, so. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So, yeah, it's, um, it, 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 you know, and Shane Van Giesbergen just at the end of that race, making a pass with two laps to go, that's just was kind of a, a great ending for that weekend because if you're a hardcore fan, you know how much skill he needed and if you were just a casual fan, you saw a pass for the win, which is two laps to go. And that's, that's not always the case in NASCAR. Yeah. Yep. You don't want those, uh, what is it, uh, wire to wire Martin Truex Jr. wins, right? Those are not exactly the best uh, by comparison. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. That's for sure. Everybody wants a great finish every time, but uh, except if you're the leader of all those laps, you, you want it to be born. Yeah, exactly. All right. Hey, thanks again, Bob. And uh, looking forward to more of your work on NASCAR. I know Fox is done for the season, but you are most certainly not covering the rest of the season. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, guys. All right. Great to hear from Bob Pachris. But we have another interview for you today. We talked to Ahmed Farid of NBC and Peacock last week, and we didn't put all of that discussion in last week's podcast. It's a little bit more left over, and we will now switch to that discussion. We talked to Ahmed about horse racing, which he covers for NBC, and the future of that sport. So enjoy this from our interview last week with Ahmed Farid. You know, John and I have talked uh, in recent weeks, you know, since the Triple Crown's happened about how it's kind of lost its luster. Um, you know, now it's it's on two separate broadcast networks, of course, now, uh, you know, the Preakness, like, doesn't even get horses from the Derby, really, anymore. Like, you know, trainers don't want to run there horses unless you know they won the door derby of course i mean how how can we kind of revive the triple crown is that even possible at this point it's hard um the sport has changed like you mentioned i think in what we've been a proponent of on nbc and if you've listened to randy moss and he'll say since his espn days going back 30 years or 20 years or whatever i don't want to make randy older than he is but he's been talking about this stuff for a long time on tv and he has been a big proponent of spacing out these triple crown races, especially spacing out the Derby and the Preakness. Two weeks is basically unheard of. It happens one time in a horse's career if they do the Derby and the Preakness. And as you mentioned, fewer and fewer horses and trainers are making that decision for their horses. 
Um, we just had one this year. It was it was Mage, and like quite honestly, there was question whether he was going to do it um, because he had never done that before. Like none of these two year olds have ever done before. So I think that is a way if you can space out the races a little bit more, four or five weeks between all the races. Now, of course, that would push the Belmont back, and that would affect other things um, for that track. But if you really want the best three-year-olds, which is what the tradition has been back in the day, it was that was the idea. It wasn't the tradition wasn't you know two weeks in between races because they were doing two weeks in between a lot of races back in the day. The tradition was we have the best three-year-olds that are going to run in this race, and we have the best three-year-olds are going to run in this race, and then the best three-year-olds in the Belmont, and see who comes out on top. Um, so I think if we get back to that tradition, I mean, it's in a lot of ways it's like baseball, right? It's like a lot of the rule changes were actually to get the sport back to what it was. 20 or 30 years ago, I think horse racing is probably leaning more towards this idea now um, after seeing the field for the Preakness last year. I don't know when it would happen, but if I was to make a guess, I would think that we will see this within the next few years that, you know, you might, you might see a little more spacing between these races. And maybe that, if we had the names of the horses and they had three showdowns all against each other, um, would kind of get some of that magic back, which, which by the way, the Derby, there's still a ton of magic with the Derby, and you don't get that many people watching something that doesn't resonate um, with, with the country, and I think it's it's cool, and that time of year, there really is no other event that pulls in that kind of kind of audience, and so we love the Derby, we love the Preakness, we used to love the Belmont, um, no, we still love the Belmont, too, um, but yeah, I, I would love to see the sport get kind of, get back on its feet in, in ways, and I think spacing out the races could do that. You know, talking about the Derby, all the deaths of horses uh, casting a real pall over that sport. Do you think this could go the way of, uh, what was it, hydroplaning racing? Do you remember that? Uh, you know what I'm talking about? The the boat yeah. racing they used to have? Could it, go, right. could it go in that direction where you just don't hear about this anymore in 30 years? Yeah. Um, yes, I think. And everyone is well aware of that in the in the horse racing community. And when I started covering it in 2019, I was over at Santa Anita and they had a very, very big problem in Santa Anita in 2019. And so much so that they were wondering whether it was going to, the horse sport of horse racing was going to even be able to exist in California uh, anymore. And so since then, they have invested a lot of money and they've done a great job. And Stronic Group has done a great job, horse racing now of, identifying injuries before they become fatal. And so people say, well, okay, if they've done such a great job, how are we still seeing equine fatalities? Well, if you look at the numbers, they've actually gone down um, from 2019 to 2020 to 2021, but we're also more aware of them now. And I think that's a big change. We're definitely more sensitive to the stories. We're more aware every time it happens, especially if it happens around a Kentucky Derby week, we're going to hear about it. New York Times is going to write about it. And I don't think that was necessarily the case 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. Um, so while the sport has gotten safer, we often say until we can get that number down to zero injuries and fatalities, it's going to be a story. And then you have the obvious you know, problem of can you ever get it down to zero? There's always going to be some element of, of injury. And when a horse gets injured, it's often fatal because you can't just tell a horse to be off its feet. It's just not healthy for a horse to be off his or her feet for a long period of time. So it's it's a difficult time for the sport and they're trying to implement HISA, who is a governing body that's trying to give some nationwide rules. We haven't ever had that in the sport before. So some some rules that every track 
in the country has to has to abide by. But I will say this, like, there's no one that cares for these horses more than the people around a barn and around a racetrack. This is their livelihood. They want these horses to be healthy and well and succeed and, and win races. Um, that's how they make money. So they, they love these horses. They're as heartbroken and more heartbroken than anyone else when something happens to them. And that I think that's what strikes you most when you're close to the sport and looking at it is how much it pains the people in the sport whenever there's an accident on the track. And you, you just feel for them and they're doing everything they can. They put a lot of money into making the problem a problem better and, and trying to help it and solve it. But can you solve it completely? Probably not. Do you think this sport could survive another Barbaro? If you had a really high profile horse, a derby winner, have that happen, would that be the knockout blow for horse racing where it is now? I don't know, because I think probably people would say that there have been a few knockout blows um, just with the, I mean, just this year at the Kentucky Derby with all the fatalities on Derby Day even. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know. I think there's still a lot of people that, that love the sport, love the event, love the idea of it, of bringing everyone together and all having these communal experiences. And I think we're getting so few of those now in our world. I, I think those are, those are just really important. So if, if the Kentucky Derby were to go away or some of these races, it's like, okay, what are we all, what are we all congregating around anymore? You know, are we doing it around church as much anymore? No. Are we doing it around these big national TV events? Are we doing it around Seinfeld? No, we're not doing that anymore. It's like, what are these big cultural moments where we're all kind of watching the same thing? And so I think it would be a shame for horse racing to, to go away because you lose some of that. And what, what replaces it? I think that's part of the struggles. We're having a hard time replacing some of these things that are, that are going away now. All right. Well, that will do it for this week's podcast. We hope you enjoyed our discussions with both Bob Pockers and Ahmed Farid. And uh, we'll be back next week in our usual time slot and talking about the ratings. So uh, looking forward to that. Enjoy. Uh, I was going to say enjoy the 4th of July because we're taping Monday. Obviously, by the time this podcast comes out on Wednesday, the 4th of July will have already been done. So I guess I'll say I hope you enjoyed the 4th of July as we move forward into the slowest month of the year. July. My goodness. we got the NBA Summer League coming up. We've got Wimbledon. Uh, not really a whole heck of a lot else and, and uh, not, not, not the greatest month for sports talk but we'll find a way hopefully there won't be any more layoffs at least yeah exactly those are never fun to talk about alright so I hope you enjoyed the podcast this week and we will be back with more next week uh, thanks for joining us save big on brunch for mom all in the Kroger app Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.